Have you ever met someone and thought their job sounded cool? Or perhaps you're wondering how you can get to a position that doesn't seem to match any of the qualifications you have at the moment. Well, if so, this podcast is for you. We found some people with jobs that you might not necessarily know about or expect people to have, and we're going to ask them about how they got there. Welcome to What Do They Do? A podcast about jobs and how people got them. Sam and I had a wide-ranging chat about what he wanted to be when he was growing up, different routes that he took through different careers along the way, and ultimately what he's looking to do next. So really hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, let's get into the interview. Did I really synchronize those to make my editing job easier? Yeah. Okay. Well, sod that then. Hey Sam, how you doing? <laughs> Good. Yeah, fairly natural? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Entirely. <laughs> uh, you know about our podcast, right? In terms of like... Yeah. What it is. and So we're looking to find out like what, how people ended up doing what they're doing and kind of where they started and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you're convinced you're an obvious guest for it, are you? <laughs> Not really. We can see how we go. Let me prove you wrong. Uh, so, just starting with the basics, what did you want to be when you grew up? Really early on, I wanted to be an architect. That was that was the thing I really wanted to do. I, you know, I did lots of drawing. I came up with these sort of grand plans for like my perfect house, and so a lot a lot of that time was sitting there just sort of sketching out which water slide would go from which room, where where the biggest pool would be, all the childhood things that you'd want in a house. It's very hydrology based. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's a certain irony in this that, so on the first episode of the podcast, Dean asks me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and it was architect. <laughs> so in terms of these weird and wonderful options, we're pretty much online now. So like mine, mine, mine was more Lego, was the, the basis behind me wanting to be an architect. Yours was more drawing. Yeah. Uh, how long did that continue for, drawing your perfect house? Oh, it went on for quite a while, probably into my just before I was a teenager. You don't still do it now? Well, I, I, do it for, <laughs> I do it. I do it for like, you know, extensions to the house or renovations for the for the house and things like that. So I suppose that's kind of like doing it. I mean, I've seen your extension. There was no water slide or pool option. So did it get voted down in the consultancy? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, when you're a child, you don't have like those... Uh, you know, responsibilities as you do now. So you, you get vetoed these days for things like water slides. But I mean, if, if I could, if I had the money and, uh, and the uh, endorsement from the other half, then there'd definitely be a water slide in my house. Look forward to that. Yeah. Did you, how far did you pursue architecture? Like you're drawing the houses and thinking about like place you want to live. And you said to about like teenage years and then like, was there a yeah. shift at that point or did you just go off the idea or? Well, this is where you and I start to go different, down different paths because you're, you're a maths teacher and I was just so bad at maths uh, and I realised that that's what you needed as an architect and uh, it became something that was more unattainable as I realised what was going into learning architecture. Um, so I went down the next best thing 
I thought it was like a sort of, I thought it was like a uh, playing second fiddle to architecture, but it, it ended up being pretty good for me. It was doing like design and art and stuff like that. See, yeah, because I thought, I thought I'd done exactly the same, so I went down the civil engineering route. Yeah. Probably just based on like it was more pure mathematics, yeah. <laughs> which sounds exciting. Uh, but um, but I don't think I even really kind of appreciated the design part of things until I got a bit older. Because you grew up in Australia. Yeah, I grew up everywhere. I, oh, yeah. I, I was born in Australia, but I, uh, Dad was a diplomat, so we moved around like every three years and uh, spent a lot of time in America as well. Um, and so there's a lot of different cultures that influenced the way I thought about things. Did you, was your school your schools generally international schools or a variation? Usually a variation. Um, there'd be a point where I'd be in an international school for a little while and then I'd transition to a more localised school. Yeah, it's was, it was pretty weird, the diversity and the having to leave different schools all the time and make new friends. Did that change kind of your aspirations when you went into various different places based on who was there, what they wanted to be? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you, you meet people and they have their aspirations. They're influencing yours. And you kind of, you get a different sense of what life should be or what the world's made up of. And you sort of try all these different things. And I think Dad was always, he was always saying, and I was like this sort of, sort of okay at everything, but not great at one thing. <laughs> <laughs> Jack of all trades. Yeah, which is not great. But, you know, I kind of just lent into that, I think. Do you think that has something to do with lots of different schools, lots of different places around the world, or was that just is that just you? I'm not sure. It could potentially have a fair impact on the way that 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 I am now. Yeah, I think it could do. It could do. But I think you know, I know people who have grown up in the same place and same school their whole life, and they're just as diverse in the way they think. So yeah, what like whereabouts in the world then have you been to school? Uh, Indonesia, so Jakarta, Bali, Singapore, Washington DC, San Francisco, and Australia. That that covers a reasonable amount of continents and places, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and like, how different was it in terms of the schooling, or like, did you notice a difference? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I, there was one point where I was thrown into a Chinese school in the middle of San Francisco while we were in transition, and and I was called the round eye, where you know. Whereas, I don't, you know, yeah. your, your listeners won't be able to see what I look like, but I look very oriental. <laughs> I can confirm there is a, <laughs> an oriental type of look, but, you know, unique in every way. And then, you know, and then going into other schools, you get sort of ostracized in different ways. So it was, and it, you know, there was one point we came back from uh, America and I had to go straight into a French speaking school. They only spoke French and uh, I didn't know any French. So it was just, there's a lot of, a lot of challenges to get through. Did you ever find that like something that would have been like the thing that got you into the cool gang in one school was the thing that got you ostracized at another? Oh, definitely. 100%. 100%. Especially coming from like, say, the Chinese school, you know, you're having a perspective on things there because everyone sort of has a, has a certain type of way of looking at life and they, they play certain games or they, they're really creative in the way that they, you know, write stories. And then you go to a, a more less nerdier school <laughs> and you try and do those things it doesn't work so it's a it's like trial and error 
Do you think that helped or hindered in the way that you approach like new people, new situations? Yeah, I think it does. I think well, in, in my in my approach anyway, as a person, it definitely did because that's how I going to meet new people or talking in different situations that I'm not used to. It's always a a quick assessment of what's going on, trying to understand the people you're talking to, and then sort of giving them some sort of cues that make them comfortable to be able to talk to you and then you can start you know a proper conversation so yeah I think that's definitely part of my approach and probably where it came from because we'll, we'll get into what you do these days in due course but it sounds like you've just described some of the skills that you use on a fairly regular basis with your work oh yeah I didn't I didn't think about that yeah you're right because inter- I mean, the reason I want to hold off on what you currently do is there's an interesting route to get to it like, that I, I know a little bit about. So like after schooling and then did you go to a particular university or college and was that like, did you pick a place to go to or was it based on a course or what, um, was, the next, what was the next step? Yeah, so like in, in Australia, they call it a college, but it was just the final two years of secondary school. And I lent into photography, art, and design they had a design graphic design course and I did pretty well there in those three and then from there I looked at uh, universities that did like design degrees and things like that but I didn't get into any because <laughs> I, was, I was also a bartender at the time so it wasn't a lot of yeah it wasn't uh, academics in, in in my in that at that time in my life wasn't a huge priority because I was also playing guitar and things like that and but I did get into a like a technical college, and that um, that was more like a of applied design and art, and they did all kinds of things, you know, from life drawing to psychology, everything, you know, uh, computer studies and design in in all different aspects. Was that so? Was it that you felt obliged to go and continue academia, though it wasn't necessarily? your priority no or it was to satisfy my my parents sort of wishes more than anything of my own experience and as a parent you kind of think about what you'd want for your own kids and following this traditional route or doing things that have traditionally worked and this is one of the things around the podcast is are those routes still valid that's why i'm kind of really interested in kind of speaking to people about how they got to where they got to so when it comes to my own children, am I saying, oh, no, you've got to, you've got to do your A-levels, you've got to go off to university because that's the way it's done. But I'm, I'm meeting a lot of people that didn't do that and they seem like they're doing all right. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> technical, so the kind of the bartending and the stuff you're doing, the technical college, whereabouts was that in Australia? That was in Canberra. Um, and, you know, Canberra is, an, is basically a man-made city. Is it similar to Washington DC and like it's a it's a designed as a kind of political capital? It definitely, definitely. And you know, for a young person growing up, that's not where you want to be. It wasn't designed for you. <laughs> no. I spent most of my time either on the coast two hours away surfing or in the winter I'd be up the slopes trying to ski as much as I can and just as much time away from, from that place as possible. And that's probably the bartending gave me a different perspective on <laughs> on things. <laughs> Very different perspective. <laughs> well, you just got to meet different people, and you know, it was it was something of a an escape 
because everyone in there is escaping, aren't they? So, yeah. Um, yeah, and it wasn't a great place to to spend a lot of time, but I quickly moved to Sydney from there, and yeah, it was much better. So in terms of, uh, so there's that decision then, right, about like, what do I do now? Why do I want to do it? How old were you at that point? Um, just 21, I think. Yeah, I think I finished at 21. Gotcha. It's because I think I was still following the, the party line at 21. <laughs> well, I say that actually. There's there's a story about failing my second year at university, which I can tell at another point, right? <laughs> oh, I'd like to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, damn Mario Kart. <laughs> that was too much of a distraction. Um, but I think like the reason I, I reflect on it is I I quit a band to go to university. I was just saying that to my wife today, actually. That so I say like I found on the internet the uh, the the lead singer from that band. So I said to them, "I'm going to university." Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, why don't you just you know why don't you just not um, stay with the band?" I think I know how that would have gone. <laughs> But there's always a little part of me that wonders, like, what if? Yeah. What if I hadn't kind of gone down the, the standard route of going to university? Who knows? So at 21, did you stay on or go off the beaten track? No, I, I got back on. Um, I, left, I left Canberra as a bartender and went to work for my uncle as a... What was I doing? I was, I was working for Phillips Consumer Products, and it was a interactive division where they had CDs with interactivity on them so you had a CD you had like a DVD player and you put it in there and it was connected to like this TV and it was touch screen this <laughs> 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 back in the uh, early 90s and yeah and so that would then be installed into shopping malls and it was you know the main client was Johnson & Johnson so it was so you know mothers new mothers or parents would come up and they would be able to select different products based on their age of their baby or the you know where they're at with it and uh and that was touchscreen it was so funny and now it's all come back around again <laughs> so was that like was that really cutting edge at the time it was yeah yeah and what like were you doing like the user interface or what was your particular kind of role yeah. in it yeah i was doing the user interface so i was doing all the graphics and yeah uh, all the menus and all the kinds of you know putting images in there and videos of babies crawling around and things like that so I'd love to see that I'd love to as well but I can't find it <laughs> you know how you always reflect back on previous work and think oh god what was I thinking yeah you know it's maybe it was genius I, I doubt that very much <laughs> did you stay very much within that kind of no no I went into magazines after that which magazines? Um, it was, it was a, it was called Tracks Surfing Magazine. But I was also doing like you know motocross and snowboarding magazines and uh, skiing magazines, mountain biking magazines. Yeah, all the action sports stuffs. Is that just an opportunity that kind of came around through your connections through the surfing and the skiing that you've been doing before? Or? It was, it was basically that was my favorite surfing magazine, and I was on a mission to get a job there, and um, I thought that would be the best job in the world. And it pretty much was for a while. <laughs> so there's, there's a middle question here, like, what did you want to be when you grew up at the age of, like, 22? And you're like, I wanted to work for tracks. Yep, I wanted to work for a surfing magazine. And, and yeah, you made it happen? I made it happen. How yeah. did you make it happen? They were hiring. I was already living in Sydney at the time. And 
I basically just blagged it. <laughs> they said, they said, do you know Quark Express and you know all these software applications for making magazines? And I went, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah, like the back of my hand. And they went, great, you're hired. <laughs> that is really, really interesting. So um, at the time that we're talking, this won't have we haven't sort of published the the what will be the third episode of the podcast probably. Um, with our guest called Caitlin. So we had a talk with Caitlin who does a really interesting job around really just kind of looking at being a little bit disruptive around the company and making sure that they're not getting stuck in a rut. Um, and she was talk we are talking to her about how she got that job. And when she, she was headhunted for it, so they came to find her and she looked at the job description and she said... Oh no, why, why would they want me? I haven't got any of the skill set for this. Irregardless of the fact she'd worked with like three or four startups and made, you know, done some really successful work, which got us talking about a book that I'm reading by Caroline Criado Perez, Invisible Women. Mm -hmm. And there's part in that about like men over egg their abilities. Yes. And are open to like, <laughs> yeah, I'll figure it out. Um, and women may have a tendency to under appreciate their abilities mm. and therefore in the heart in the in the job market and kind of equal opportunities that does that does play a part i was just really interested in that one like <laughs> hmm, they're asking for this stuff but i'm sure i can figure it out wow yeah that's what i did i completely overegged it um yeah and i i think i've done that a few times you know when it when we went when i went from magazines if i'm skipping ahead apologies but if i went from magazines to websites you know i saying yeah i can i mean it, it was when websites started going crazy and the internet was sort of exploding uh yeah i had people who wanted me to do surfing websites so it was like professional surfers and and companies surfing companies and um and i and they said can you do websites oh yeah no worries yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then we no to figure out how yeah. you do that <laughs> yeah so i'm pretty sure i've done that consistently through my career have you seen nathan barley no oh it's a comedy program but based around the kind of the launch of internet sites and there's a real chance they're called Nathan Barley who has a, a really sketchy website <laughs> you need to watch it because yeah. it sounds like there are some parallels with exactly what you did because <laughs> everyone else in the the sitcom is basically in like magazines edgy magazines all oh, right so oh, I gotta watch this thing. it sounds like it was based on you yeah <laughs> maybe it was Go if you remember that in the show notes, the link to Nathan <laughs> Barley. <laughs> Trashback.com. I look forward to seeing that. People listening will know it's not .com, but I can't bring myself to say <laughs> what the dot after comes after the dot. Cool. Now, Nathan Barley aside then, from magazines to websites for... This is all sounding very cool. So from a surfing magazine to then just making websites for surfers. Presumably for that, you've got to spend a bit of time around them, get involved in the scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I met Kelly Slater, um, would go on trips with the with the pros in different places, Indonesia and up to Queensland and California. Yeah, we got lots of free stuff, judge bikini contests and <laughs> maybe edit that one out. Yeah, we did some crazy things. It's just, yeah, it was fun. A lot of fun. You know when you see someone doing something, you're like, how did they get there? Mm. I'm really interested by that and how they went about it. And hopefully that's also true of people listening. That it's, like if you're talking to kids in school, mm. would you suggest to them, take a chance, be bold, believe in, believe that you can probably figure it out and kind of blag it? 
Yeah, I would. I would. You could almost give them a, a few little pointers or tips on how to do that as well. I think that show them in some respect. You know, you could give them a certain challenge, or you could even foster some idea that would come from them. You know, that because it's be it becomes a better challenge or an easier challenge for them to understand if they've decided on what it is themselves. So that autonomy drives that that notion to keep going and and reveal more things about it, and then sort of look at what possibilities could be with it. You know, they're more open-minded to to how to approach it. So yeah, definitely. Let's jump ahead a little bit. What do you do now? Uh, it's a hard one. This is exactly why I picked you for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could I could give you four words that somehow they don't really make sense altogether, but that somehow describes what I do now. But it's it's like ethical software product design. I would say these days it's I think about problems that are sustainable, things that impact people at, at a wide level. And, and I try and use everything I've learned since the days of surfing magazines. Although you can't really create that link very well, I don't think. But I try and use everything I've learned from, from everything I've experienced in my life to, to solve those problems. Because you do a lot of user testing, user feedback. That's kind of a big part of your role, right? Is, is spending time talking to users about the products that you're working on. Yeah. It's interesting that it almost sounds like there's some skills that you've got that you didn't realise from your moving around schools of going into that room and judging it. But so is that something you got into? I mean, obviously you were doing that. You suppose you were doing that with the Philips job, right? Yeah. So it's something that's always been there. Yeah. What kind of so what kind of user tests do you do with the with the current products you're working on? It, it's probably my favourite part of what I do because it's. It's the most insightful, and you come to these realizations that just that just blow you away. And also, you get yeah, you just get these great insights into people, these different angles into the the problem. But essentially, you know, ideally, I would talk to at least uh, three people a week on a particular product that I'm working on, and it could be a particular feature in that product. It's often just an interview. It's often just online and a quick chat and I'll just sort of make them feel comfortable, explain to them what we're going to do. And, and it's usually just one simple task that they, they've got to get through in the software. Along that path, they sort of explain to me, you know, what they're thinking and what their situation is. And I'll try and put themselves in a state of context that allows them to see themselves in that moment in time, just to try and make sure that the insight that, they, that I'm getting or what they're telling me is really authentic and really you know, it has that aspect of real life that we can leverage and, and ensure that we what we do with the feature and how we change it and how we move it on fits exactly with that sort of purpose and, and meets the, the problem head on. When you're working with something that is accessible for all or aimed at being accessible for all, in that design process, do you focus on particular users? Like, how do you, do you recruit certain users that are at the extremes? Yeah, so we do it in a few ways. It's it's difficult um, because there are some challenges in getting those specific users, especially people with disabilities. But what we've done is the 
we found that the best way is to create and establish relationships with different universities. And in those relationships, we often, we will go there and actually see them face to face and talk to them in a, in a more personal manner rather than, you know, treating them like research participants. And so it's more, I suppose it's using UX on UX. So you're trying to be empathetic to the people in and among the process. And so we've got a lot of, and we often get a lot of video from that from those encounters and they really good interviews and so we've we've decided to kind of share those insights with our community and we've got a youtube channel with those um those interviews and and a podcast and it really it really helps establish and celebrate our community as well so they feel like they're a part of our wider mission but then you know the product is also influenced by what they say and what they tell us you know it's harder to get instructors to sit down and do interviews so often we'll We'll look at them as a separate kind of methodology to our research and we'll hit them with a potential quick half an hour interview or we can get them to just do it online by themselves and we'll ask them to go through a specific task and then we'll get data that way. And, and obviously we get data through the system as well, um, just through usage. So on that balance, right, between spending an hour or two hours with a small group of users and building that relationship versus... The analytics you'll get in the background of the time people are interacting with the tool and the usage statistics what kind of balance do you put on each of those aspects yeah it depends i think you a lot of people have often said that you know qualitative data is better but actually you need to have both qual and quant as equal players in what you use as insight but how you decide to apply that to a feature really depends on the feature and it depends on you know there will be insights that you can you can gain and glean that give you uh, a very good indication on where you should potentially head and then you can sort of understand from that headache I mean if you're if you've got a very good product vision you can almost sort of determine that anyway but then you can decide on where you want to head based on that data whether it's say you know a few interviews with students you'll see patterns but then that you need to almost validate those patterns as well, and that's where you know the quant data really works well. But it's it's more often that those interviews are edited in a way that you know gives us the ability to sort of see the cross section of, of insight. I can put that in front of like our developers, and they feel the problem right within their you know within their heart or within themselves. And so when we go to solve the problem, it's that stuff that really makes that the impact in how how much quality is put into that feature and how well it works. So as in working for relationships and individuals and kind of because it's worthwhile doing. Yeah. Is when you said ethical product development, is it the realizing you're building for people? Is that the driving force, the but the ethics that you put on it? Yeah, it, it is it is definitely. And I, I like how you picked up on that. I, you know, a lot of people think of ethics, like in ethics in AI and ethics in, you know, in uh, societal implementations of culture and things like that. But yeah, I look at I look at it like if there's a, a product that I can contribute to, it want to be holistically ethical to to serve the needs of the people who it's for, but also it should be ethically driven as well in the sense of you know having the people who it's for bring and contribute how it comes to life 
I think it's really important. So I think feel free to drop out details as you like, but the product we're talking about, you created, right? You started it as a company, it then got acquired. So like, what was the journey to deciding to build your own product and put that kind of time and effort into something? Essentially, you're a startup, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just me. It was, um, it was. There's three other very talented developers who I who I'd worked with in the past, uh, and we started a company and we just sort of started out consulting at first. But we we did have a few other products. Uh, one was like a a research or academic um, collaboration sort of social network to sort of bridge the the silos of research and. And, you know connect people from different universities to do different things and then we did lots of pretty heavy back-end stuff and and then ally was one that we we found that basically because we we'd um, been working closely with a lot of university ID IT departments and they would get a lot of people you know coming to them saying we've got a massive issue with the accessibility of our course materials and we need you to find a solution and they had nothing really to other than having to, you know, bolster their remediation department and their mm. student services areas and resources. But, you know, really they could never keep up. So we saw that as an issue because, you know, if you're a student with a disability, you could wait up to a month before you get the, the documents you need to be able to read them in comparison to someone or a student with without a, any kind of disability. And that's that was pretty unfair. So... We looked at that as a challenge and we created some machine learning and and then we decided actually this is not just a single player in this in this solution is not just it's not just the student but we're looking at a system and in that system there there's other players like the instructor and then the administrator or the, the wider institution itself so we we fleshed out the tool to also consider that when an instructor uploaded a file then we would be able to, at the time of need, intervene and give them a score and then give them guidance based on that score and what that issue is to, to fix the issue. So that then allowed more another angle to, to a better accessible course. And then from that, you can sort of extrapolate that further out and then give the institution a better understanding of you know where the problems lie in the, in, in the courses and in, in the institution and the, and the certain training that needs to be sort of had by different people throughout and that gives them a more of a I suppose a more strategic you know intervention into making a whole university more accessible. So instructors can get the bit of feedback on the resources they're putting into the the system that they're sharing with those learners and it and it kind of gives them does it give them some tips for improvement as well? Yeah definitely yeah yeah. So it's like look, this is not accessible for these reasons and these. this is how you can improve it. Yeah, Is that as basic as like font size in some cases or is there also kind of um, structural stuff that, that it can pick out too? Yeah, structural as well. So, you know, often it's, you know, the most one of the most common ones which is really easy to fix is just the images without alt descriptions. No, yeah. And so you can do that through the tool straight away and that'll permeate throughout wherever the image is used. And that, that's, that can be fairly easy. It's when the, the instructor has to download the file and restructure their, their uh, document with you know using heading structures. Mm. But then what we're finding is that um, once a lot a lot of the times it's, 
instructors just really don't have uh, an understanding of of why they need to do it or or even just is that because they've never had to use a screen reader on their documents so they don't understand how that works yeah. and stuff like that yeah and we try and explain that so we have two sections saying why it's useful and then how to fix it often once they learn how to fix it you know when they're using the heading structure in the document they get this really nice little sort of menu that they can click through and they they themselves can better navigate their own content and once you realize a lot of these things are going to be beneficial to you as well then it becomes easier and becomes more of a, an, an, a more of a culture shift and and it makes it much better for everyone have you got user information on after instructor gets the after instructor gets the feedback whether they you know, do their scores go up yeah yeah we do each yeah. time yeah and often and they mostly do go up there very rarely do we see a score go backwards but it can happen and and that might be also just because they've chosen the wrong file they've uploaded the, the older file or, oh, okay you know <laughs> but um yeah it's it's always going up and it's brilliant in in seeing that another another thing behind the data is like we have alternative formats that students can download like in braille and mp3 and things like that and then when you see that you're getting you know two million downloads a week for you know the, the entire data set you know there can't be that many students with disabilities usually there's just one or two in an odd class or there so it's it's definitely evidence that we're seeing students downloading these things who, who don't have a disability and just using those formats in different ways to help them out well you know we went to an accessibility meeting didn't we? we were talking about the gaming industry oh yeah, yeah. and how the gaming industry is getting better at baking in accessibility from the beginning mm. and actually while a feature might in theory be a appropriate for 5% of the population who have a particular challenge or disability, like 30% of gamers are using that feature, particularly like big text and kind of verbal feed, all that kind of stuff yeah. that you, you don't necessarily qualify as someone who has to have it. Be like, that's really useful. Yeah. There's a great, there's a great examples of that in design, aren't there? Of designing for the extremes. Oxo Peeler, I've mentioned many times. Yeah. Like you design for someone with arthritis and you get the best peeler ever. Yeah. Uh, I find those fascinating, those kind of things. So with all that experience then, and what we like to do at this point in the podcast is, so Dean, Dean works at Google, who's the other member of the podcast. He's not here right now. That'd be even weirder because what you need to appreciate is just to make Sam feel really comfortable, I brought him to my bedroom. <laughs> I was sitting in my bedroom just because it was quieter. But yeah, Dean at Google, recently they had a talk about big talk. So as in the opposite to small talk. Yeah. So rather than like, hey, oh, weather's a bit crappy at the moment isn't it and all that uh big talk is like actually approaching a conversation with someone new with like a, a bold more deep conversation uh, i think dean's got a, a set of cards with all these big talk questions on yeah um but one of them is if you could be anything what would you be hmm. and while you think about that i'm gonna turn the lights on to make yourself make you feel even more comfortable <laughs> Um, what would I be? Anything. 
if you were to say anything, you know, uh, that would mean potential for any kind of limitless resource or yeah. is that where you, is that where we're going? You know, I I recently saw that Bill Gates documentary on Netflix. I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. I really I really like So like it. inside Bill Gates brain or Yeah, what? yeah. I've got a massive respect for him and Melinda. I think that that if I could be I don't want to be either one of them, but if I could have the resources and the network and the the influence to be able to do the kinds of things that they're doing at that scale, like to eradicate diseases and and tackle climate change at that scale, that's what I would want to do and, and what I'd want to be. So Dean's follow up at this point is normally so why wouldn't you start that now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, in a way, in my own little way, I'm trying to. So, yeah, being able to now sort of look back and look at allies as a success and then use that as maybe uh, potential equity to move forward and, and do something else and see how how big I can get and how, or how, how much impact I can make. It's not how big I can get, but how, how much impact. <laughs> No, no, see, it's also a nice way to reflect on actually, you're doing quite a lot. <laughs> Even though it doesn't always feel like it. No, it doesn't. Because no. another thing that's come up a few times in, in the podcast interviews so far is imposter syndrome. Oh, I get that, yeah. Well, I'm... I'm interested to find if there's anyone that doesn't. Because mm. I think we've talked like, at events that I do with teachers would it'll come up a lot where they don't feel that they've got anything to offer and actually it's it's never it's never the case um we've also done some events recently with with young people and again making them aware that the people they are looking at and they think oh they're the finished package it's like doesn't feel like it (laughs) i think that's really really interesting along the way that like does anyone really feel yeah like they're cutting it in their in their industry. Yeah, I wonder like if you could just eradicate it, how much potential could be in the world? It's yeah. almost like this horrendous disease that we've all accumulated from something. Because oh, that's an interest. I never thought of it that way. Does it have a positive effect or does it have a negative effect? Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, you're right. There is a potential to for. It just to be in this massively egotistical world. <laughs> yeah, does it become ego? <laughs> or does it just become a lot of really confident people who, who are able to sort of yeah. confidently share their abilities? Yeah, maybe there has to be a, a, a predetermined characteristic before you eradicate it out of certain people. <laughs> oh. Then you become, <laughs> it becomes a bit of this weird dystopian future. I'm not thinking of the pen license that the kids get at a school. Oh, yeah. It's like you've got your beyond imposter syndrome license. You can go strutting out of school. Yeah. Like, I believe in myself. <laughs> yeah, that could not work at all. No. But yeah. it's interesting. But that's what they want. They want the kids to walk out of there believing in themselves. Yeah, I, I watched a YouTube video last night of a uh, kid giving his... Um, valedictorian like speech and it's a really interesting one because he basically says 
I've got this honor and a year ago I realized I was in the running for it and I went for it and I entirely regret worrying about it. Because <laughs> he said, focusing on this one thing and then I got it and I was like, oh, is that it? <laughs> yeah. And then gives a speech basically about value your relationships <laughs> and don't worry about these artificial kind of accolades that really won't cut it when you get to it. <laughs> Good on you. I know, I know. I don't know how that's related to imposter syndrome at all. Yeah. Do you, ever, you don't seem like you ever get it, though. Oh, I mean, I feel like I am fooling the world all yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so the difference between you and I is I quite enjoy speaking in front of people. Yeah, I don't. Which is, I know, it's something you're not. <laughs> and people, so people ask me about that a lot. Yeah. Because I don't, I wouldn't say I don't get nervous. I think I'm just fortunate to be able to stand in front of people and talk about stuff I genuinely like either feel passionate about or know about. Mm. So I don't tend to write down scripts or read from scripts. I just kind of go with it. But I think I can get away with that because I know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to talk about things I know about. Mm. And I've always presumed that the people nervous about talking are, are talking about something they don't know about. But then that that's not true, because I've now subsequently spoken to people who are like, no, I know it inside out, but I don't want to talk, I don't want to stand in front of anyone <laughs> and talk about it. God, yeah, no. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, actually, it's dubious as to whether I actually know what I'm talking here, about. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> Hashtag imposter syndrome. Uh, so, yeah, I... I think because I because I'm happy to get up in front of people and talk, that might maybe give the impression that I'm not feeling that way. But I definitely come out of all of those situations with a little bit of a feeling of like, got away with another day. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll get found out tomorrow. Yeah. Or yeah. the next day. Yeah. But so. you never do, so not so far. Yeah. Not so far. I mean we haven't we haven't published the podcast yet. So by the time this is out in the public, who knows? <laughs> Maybe I'll be finished. There's a lot of revelations going on in this episode. Yeah. Imposter syndrome aside, thank you very much. Genuinely uh, thankful that you were able to pop over and, and jump on the podcast. It's been really interesting. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, let me sit, sit in your bedroom. I've never seen your bedroom before. <laughs> Now I'm going to be turning off the microphone. <laughs> oh, Dean, if you're editing this, really do edit this bit out. Should we go into the main part of the house? Yes. That's not <laughs> a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs>